Scripture for this morning comes from Luke 12, starting at verse 22. And he said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, and they have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his life's span? If then you cannot even do a very little thing, why, why are you anxious about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace to be burned, how much more will he clothe you, O men of little faith? And do not seek what you shall eat and what you shall drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you have need of these things. But seek for his kingdom, and these things shall be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has gladly chosen to give you the kingdom. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you uh, this morning for uh, your presence here amongst us. That's something that we uh, have to contemplate to even begin to understand. And I pray that you would help us to, uh, to understand the reality of that. I pray that you'd help us to understand the reality of your presence right here amongst us as Joel speaks to us this morning. And I pray, Lord, for myself especially and for everyone else here too, that you'd help us to understand something specific about yourself and about ourselves and about our relationship this morning as you speak to us through Joel. I pray that you'd bless this time and his words. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would keep your <clears throat> scriptures open to that passage, now that you have heard it as a whole, we are going to go through it stutter-stepping. And let me do more teaching this morning than I do preaching. Let me just take you through three words at a time because <clears throat> you have probably heard this scripture so many times and heard so many sermons on it that uh, it is easy to get the whole point but miss the individual points, miss the details. And let me just tell you about the details this morning. Starting with verse 22. He said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life. <clears throat> now, the word anxious in Greek means to be torn apart. Its counterpart in English, worry, comes from an Anglo-Saxon word which means to be strangled or choked. Um, sometimes you, you, you talk about people who are having have a case of nerves in an athletic contest and you say, he choked. <clears throat> this literally is the feeling of anxiety that the Bible talks about. Being torn apart on the one hand, but having a, the feeling of being closed in 
or having pressure on one so that one can't breathe. Scripture says, don't be anxious about your life in general. All right? About your life. What anxiety does or what worry does is it tends to focus or concentrate our attention on something smaller than our entire life until it becomes our entire life. See what I mean? Worry strangles our perspective. It makes it close in so that we really begin to believe that those little things are everything. You, can, you know this if you have kids and they're, and they're <clears throat> in junior high and they say, well, if I don't get that dress, I'll just die. You know, if I don't go to that party, I'll just die. We, Becky and I took a, uh, when we were having our children, we were in a, one of those uh, classes where they teach you how to breathe and <clears throat> show you movies that make you want to pass out and that kind of stuff, make you want to turn back, but you can't. <clears throat> and uh, there, was a, there was a gal in there who was really having trouble with her weight. And her doctor had so, said, you got to cut out chocolate. And she said, she looked at Becky and I seriously. She was telling us this story. Tears were running down her face. She said, if I can't eat chocolate, why live? I mean, she was serious about that. Well, that's what worry does to you. It constricts your perspective. And <clears throat> the Bible says, don't let that happen. Don't be anxious as to your life. <clears throat> as to what you shall eat, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. For... <clears throat> the Greek word here is, hey, <laughs> for, he's going to give you the reason here. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Now, there are two perspectives that, that the Bible wants us to see anxiety in. First of all, it wants us to know that anxiety can cause us serious damage. Itself can cause us serious damage. Um, when I was doing research for this message, uh, I ran across some interesting stuff, stuff I didn't know of. Little stuff, but interesting. There was a clinic in London that out of 500 patients said the visual deterioration of a third of them was due to tension, not anything physio physiologically wrong. There is a doctor at Northwestern University whose name is Leonard Fosdick, who has proven <clears throat> that tension restricts the normal flow of saliva. By the way, for you first-timers here, sometimes I get a little gross and a little graphic in these messages because I just love this kind of stuff. <clears throat> Restri <laughs> restricts the normal flow of saliva so that it, it cannot neutralize the normal acids in the mouth and therefore the cavity rate is higher. So worrying can cause you to get cavities. Can you believe that? <laughs> They've done numerous studies with college students. And the college students that get the lowest grades are, of course, those that worry the most. By the way, would you like to know? Thanks, brother. <clears throat> would you like to know what major it is that people have who worry the most? Can anybody guess? What? Psychology. I heard somebody say psychology. You know, people who go to psychology tend to worry the most. Oh, a little irony there. Anyhow, <clears throat> the Bible wants you to know that worry causes damage. But I want you also to know 
<clears throat> that the things that you worry about, even if they were all added together, would not come up to what life is. The whole is more than the sum of the parts. And so the Bible is saying, even if all of those things that we worried about actually came true, it still wouldn't be our life. No matter how big they are, and some of them, you know, I, I remember when, uh, when we were going to have our first child. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, when we were going to have every one of our children, all three of them, we worried about things like physical deformity. But yet, even as much as we worried about that, and, and none of our kids were physically deformed, unless you count looking like me being physically deformed, but, <clears throat> but we had a niece who we love like crazy, who was brain damaged during the birth process. And we have continued to love her like she's 16 years old now. Love her like crazy. She's got the most wonderful countenance and personality and simplicity. Even when you worry, what you worry about comes true, it still is not a matter of ruining life. <clears throat> so therefore, Jesus says, and the scripture wants us to understand that the Bible, life is more than food and the body more than clothing and life is more than all of those things we worry about. By the way, the word life is in the neuter form, so it's talking about it as a thing, as a sum. <clears throat> then it says, consider the ravens. Now consider is in, the, in Greek, it's in the aorist imperative verb form, which means it's a command to do something one time in the future that will help you get your perspective back. Whenever a thought comes up of worry, the Bible is saying, okay, just think about this for a second. Because what we tend to do, worriers tend to worry about something. Why can't I stop worrying? You know, why can't, I'm just going to concentrate on the ravens and then go out in the backyard and look at the birds. Why can't I be like that? You know, and that becomes a worry to them. So this verb form just says, just do it one time. Just think about it for a second here. Don't concentrate on it. Don't constantly think about it. Or you're going to turn it into another one of your obsessions. Consider <clears throat> the ravens. By the way, this is one of Jesus' contrasts here. You know, one of his how much mores? The ravens were, was an unclean bird. Not only a bird, but an unclean bird. Take the lowest form of bird life. They neither sow nor reap. That's the word so. I heard a story one time about what worry does, what over-concern does. Uh, a lady in New England was planting. She, everybody had gardens around her. You know, it was a thing to do. So she, thought, she determined she'd <clears throat> plant a garden. So she thought she'd plant peas. So she was, you know, digging the holes and planting the peas. She'd never done it before. And her neighbor came over who was a wonderful gardener. And... The neighbor looked at her and said, uh, so when are you going to put up the headstones? And the, and the gal said, she thought maybe headstones were some garden language. She said, no, I mean literally tombstones. You're burying those things so deep they'll never grow. And that's what worry does to us. It makes, it makes issues seem so deep and we pay so much attention to them that it's overkill. They can't possibly sprout from there cubit. Now a cubit <clears throat> was measured like this, from the elbow 
to the tip of the fingers. It was about 18 inches. And it was the smallest. Um, I mean, they didn't have millimicrons or milliliters or centimeters or anything like that. It was the smallest normal measurement in that, in that society. Can add a cubit to his life's span. Stature is both height and length. And obviously, if you add a cubit to somebody's height, would that be neat or what? For guys like me, I got on an elevator last night where if you added a, you know, a cubit to my height, I could have looked this guy in the, in the uh, uh, face. I mean, he had just sprouted right up there. So it's not talking about height. It's talking about length, your whole life span. If you add, you can't even add the smallest measure into the longest thing that you have in this world. And if you can't even do that, he says, <clears throat> if you can't even do a very little thing, why are you anxious about other matters? So Jesus has given us two reasons not to be anxious or worryful. First of all, it's not necessary. God provides and God will provide. Secondly, it doesn't work. You know, it just flat doesn't work. As a matter of fact, it does the opposite of what you think it may do for you. Then he says, consider the lilies. And in the second area, again, this aorist imperative. Don't do it very long. Just think about it. Get your perspective back for a second. Consider the lilies. Now, lilies were not literally lilies as we know them. In Palestine, there were... Oh, I guess anemones, uh, there, were, there was a type of wildflower that after a rain would just sprout up and just absolutely make the landscape gorgeous. I mean, it, they were just beautiful. Reds and purples and just gorgeous wildflowers. But after the sun would come up, they had terrain something like ours, very sandy, wouldn't hold water. After the sun would come up, they would be dead literally in a day. Now when he says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Notice there, by the way, there is a male and female um, uh, reference there. Male was a word, uh, toil was a word for men that went out and worked for something. And spinning was something that a woman did. So that he's covering both angles here. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glories did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays, now watch that word. If God so arrays the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, what happened was all of these flowers would sprout up. They would die. They would wither in a day. Now, Palestine, Palestine has very limited, a very limited wood supply. As a matter of fact, it is so scarce, it is almost not usable as a supply for daily cooking needs. And so what people would do is go out and gather the dead grass and the dead flowers and use them for fuel for the ovens. So he, this is a literal thing that people did every day. How much more... Will he clothe you, O men of little faith? Remember Fulton J. Sheen? Um, some of you are too young to remember him, but he was, the, he was one of the few Catholic priests I ever 
knew that could preach like crazy, and he could. And he, I remember him coming on TV. I was a very little boy, very little boy. Could hardly even watch TV. I was so young. And one time he said, worry is atheism. It's a form of atheism. Oh, you of little faith, worry is anti-faith. It is not depending on God. Now, what's he saying here? Most of us miss this the first time through. He is talking here not about physical needs. He is talking here about, watch this, social acceptability. Read that closely. He doesn't say, God will give you enough clothes to be warm. He says, God will array you. He, t he refers to the beauty of the clothing. How it will be excessively acceptable. So he's not talking about work for physical needs now. He's talking about a winsomeness or attractiveness. Now the Bible further develops this when it goes into putting on spiritual qualities. In, in Romans 13 it says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In, in 1 Corinthians 15 it says, and the perishable will put on the imperishable. In Ephesians uh, 4 it talks about um, uh, putting on, help me out here, I forget that one. Anyhow, Ephesians 6 it talks about putting on the full armor of God. First uh, Peter 5.5 5, it talks about putting on uh, uh, all humility and so on and so forth. So it talks about spiritual winsomeness so that people can see who lives inside of us. But here it's talking about social acceptability. Therefore, is it awful to have nice clothes? <laughs> Wasn't for Solomon. Isn't it? You don't have to be ashamed of your nice clothes. No, nobody, you don't have to dress up. But if you don't have them, is that any big deal? No, it's no big deal either. Just dress as the Lord provides, and you will be acceptable to the people to whom he sends you. Okay, let's go on. And do not seek what you shall eat, and what you shall drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. Now, these things mean to think, mean literally things like these. It's not just food and it's not just clothing, but it's the basic needs that we have. One time I was um, flying back from, oh, I'll tell you when it was. I had a, just a general rough time in my ministry uh, at one time. It was, I felt like I had not gone in the direction that God wanted me to go. And it wasn't any intentional rebellious things. I just felt like I, I looked at my ministry one day and I had kind of missed the boat. And there were some, um, just some discomfort inside of me. And I, and I got to the place where I got all anxious, you know. I, I, I couldn't do anything. I was blaming myself and I was um, wondering why God hadn't showed me more particularly what I ought to be doing and all that kind of stuff. Anyhow, I just started... Um, messing myself up. I was, I, I got choked. You know, I got choked. I, I was choked in counseling. People would come in and I, I couldn't answer them. I didn't know. I mean, the things that would come to me normally wouldn't come to me anymore because I was so anxious. Um, 
the, the, the messages that, that had always just flowed because I had trusted God. I'd done my homework and, tr and trusted God. I, you know, every Sunday there was like a wall. I mean, God was still doing what he needed to do in the people's lives, but afterwards I went out and I just felt like I hadn't cooperated with him. So Becky, being the wise and loving person she was, said, I'm going to send you away <laughs> for a few days. Um, she, we did not have any money. We, have never, we just never had money because that's not our philosophy, and that's not a good thing. Don't follow that, but we just don't keep it. We just we use what we need, and the rest, you know, God finds a use for. We didn't have any money, but she said, I'm going to buy some plane tickets, and, or a, a plane ticket, and I'm going to send you down because I've always been an ocean person. I love the ocean. We were living in Indiana at the time. She said, I know that you are relaxed most at the ocean, and I'm just going to send you down. And I said, how in the world are you going to do that? And I, to this day, I don't know how she did it, you know. And it's probably sold something, but I never missed it. But uh, bought me a plane ticket to Daytona Beach. I want to go to Fort Lauderdale, but all she could afford was Daytona. No. <clears throat> <laughs> Spent three days going up and down the beach. You know, and fasting and praying and, you know, do prayer. You know, you ever done prayer walking? You know, you've heard of power walking. Well, there's prayer walking, too. You just get out and you just talk with the Lord. And that's what I did. And God really did straighten my spirit out during that time. Got back on the plane to go, go back to Indianapolis and sat down beside an old guy, I was just absolutely fascinated with him when he sat down because he looked like he was, you know, you just, you just have that uh, aura of wisdom. He wore grand, my, uh, uh, clothes like my grandfather used to wear. He, was, he had like a, um, an old suit on that was kind of, it was kind of a pattern. I don't know whether you remember it or not. Little bitty checks all over it, kind of a, not quite a tweed, but that kind of uh, pattern. Somebody tell me afterwards what that is. Um, what? What is it? Houndstooth? Houndstooth. That's right. It was houndstooth. Thank you. He had a houndstooth coat on, pats, uh, pants that didn't match. I mean, he was neat and he was clean, and he looked like a professor somewhere. You know, kind of looked scattered. And he sat down and he, he, opened up, <laughs> he opened up the Wall Street Journal. And I thought, gosh, I just want to learn from this guy. You know, this guy's got a great deal of wisdom. I bet he's got a great deal of wisdom. So I'm just going to start up a conversation with this guy. Because I've always been acutely aware of how much more you know the older you get. And I want to learn the wisdom of folks that have gone down the track a lot farther than I have. So I started up my conversation. And we got into it, and he was. He, he, he knew a lot. I asked him about his background. He had made enough money by the time he was 30-some years old to completely retire, and he did. Um, now, it wasn't the kind of money that would make him rich. It was just the kind of money that managed correctly would put food on the table, clothes on his back, and let him go to visit his kids when he needed to. I mean, that was basically it. So I looked at him and I said, at the, at, we were descending uh, to, the, to the airport, and I said, look, you know, I'm just a young guy. I have, uh, I have very little experience in... Manage, and, I, and I had told him, you know, some of the flubs I had made as far as uh, some of the things I referred to last week about building this huge church, but it was more of an institution than it was a church. 
and the church began to suck resources for itself rather than serve people. Um, and I told him about the, the mistakes that I had made, and he, and I said, what would you tell a guy like me? What advice would you give me? And he looked at me, and he said, I have one word for you. And he said, it's avarice. The whole world is infected with avarice. People always believe they need to have more. And even people in the church believe they need to have more. They believe the church needs to have more than it has. The church is an institution, not the church's people. Don't let that infect your life. Every day you live, search your heart for avarice and kick it out. When the Bible says, all these nations of the world eagerly seek. I think about that old guy on that plane. And I think about how many of us are sick with avarice. And the question that the Bible asks us is, how are you any different? How are you any different? That's what's implied there. How much more can you know? How much more can you be? than people who are eagerly seeking after their own welfare. Well, then it simply says, <clears throat> um, your father knows that you need these things, but seek his kingdom and these things shall be added. Now watch these tricky words, to you. Not for you, but it means on you, as a part of you. They'll be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Now let me just tell you a few more things and I'll quit. Very simply, this is what this verse means to me. This is what the Holy Spirit has, has taught me, and I'm sure he's, he's teaching you all kinds of things, much different than I. That's the difference, by the way, between hoping the Holy Spirit works and having to get a message across. If I walk out of here and I say, what do you get out? What did you get out of that message? And it's something not even remotely connected to what I thought I said. That's a wonderful thing for me. Because I know the Holy Spirit has interpreted that message for you as how you needed it. And so I hope that every Sunday we have 500 different sermons. I really hope we do. You don't need to hear what I say. You need to hear what he says. But this is what it says to me. First of all, it says we don't need to plan for our own financial um, security apart from what he's given us to have stewardship over for a while. Okay? We don't need to build barns and storehouses and say, how can I live? If God takes it all away, how can I still have it? <laughs> we don't need to do that. Because all of the things that we have in this world will someday be worthless anyhow. Um, uh, this is a terrible analogy, and it's very graphic, so I hope I don't offend you. Offend you. But, but it's, it's so true. It's, and uh, excuse, you Episcopalians, excuse me for a minute. Remember when you were toilet training your kids? Remember? And you'd set them on the, the pot, and they'd do their stuff, and they'd, what, what would they say to you? Look what I made! 
doing that. I mean, they were proud. They were proud. And you'd look at them and you'd say, <laughs> you'd want to say, don't be talking about that. That is so gross. But you couldn't because you didn't want to discourage them because they'd done something good there. So you said, ooh, boy, that's great. What a big boy. Right? Didn't you? Well, you know what? Philippians 3.8 says, when it takes a look at all that Paul had made, he says, I count it as what? Dung. When I consider the surpassing glory of knowing Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what we come to God with, whether we say, look what I built, look at the business I built, look what I made, you know? We, look at the church we made. Look at what we did here. See, everything we build up when we come to the Lord will look not too good. I mean, it's okay that we're proud of it. And God knows that we need to be at this stage in our life. And, and you know, every once in a while he'll give us a little encouragement. That's good. That's good. But what a big boy. <laughs> but let's deal with this pride thing on a realistic level. What does it matter? What does it matter? What matters is what we are growing into. Just like when we looked at our kids and we're saying, boy, they're hitting a different stage of life, a different stage of maturity, thank God. You know, that's what God looks at us. Boy, they're hitting a different stage of spiritual maturity, thank me. You know, this is wonderful because they are becoming something else. So we don't need to put our stock in getting what financial security we can because all security comes from God and God gives us everything we have anyhow. Secondly, God is aware of our social needs. There are some of us who don't worry about money every day, but we do worry about social acceptability. We do worry about what people think of us. I remember a story about Woody Hayes when he was still sane. Um, his, his early coaching days, and, and uh, you know, Woody lost it a couple times in the later years, and he just got too wrapped up in what he was doing. Avarice, it does it again, see? You begin to think you have to be a coach all the time instead of being a human being. But in his early days, boy, he was a wonderful coach that cared about the, and in the later days too, cared about the character of his men, his players, cared about teaching them the fundamentals. And he used to tell a story about the first time he walked out on the Ohio State football field. He had coached at Denison, very small university in Ohio. Miami of Ohio was very small then. Walked out in this Ohio State football field, 86,000 seats. Had his little son with him. Little son with him. And his son could feel the tension as Woody looked at all of these seats surrounding him. And his son said, but dad, the football field is the same size. Is that wise or what? It doesn't matter how many people are looking at us, how much pressure we feel because all the eyes are turned to, to, to turn their attention on us, what we're given to do remains the same. If one is watching us or if a thousand are watching us, football field is the same. We do have social needs and the Father knows our social needs and the social needs are okay with Him. We don't need to ostracize ourselves. I am not for withdrawing from society to form a Christian society. I don't believe that's why God sent us here. I believe it's okay to be in the world, not of the world, but in the world, because that's what they need, not that's because that's what we need. 
And I know we have a father who is very attuned to our social needs, unlike some of us. I remember when I, just three months ago, I walked out in a pair of blue jeans into the family room, and Josh, my oldest one, was standing there and said, Dad, don't wear your blue jeans like that. And I'm thinking, how many, how many ways can you wear blue jeans, you know? I said, what are you talking about? And he came over and he knelt down. And now the thing is, you got to, listen, you guys, I want you to be cool. I want you to be cool. You got to fold them over like this, and you, then you roll them up so that they're tight. I, I think it's kind of a lazy, lazy man's peg pants. Remember, we used to have peg pants when we were little? Well, it, they roll them up real tight. And he got all done, and I looked at him and said, Josh, you forget I'm 40 years old. I don't care what my blue jeans look like. He looked at me and he says, Dad, you forget I'm 13 years old. I do care what your jeans look like. <laughs> Well, you know, our Heavenly Father's not like an earthly father. He knows what our needs are. And He'll supply for our social needs. But this is the point. This is the point. Can we, who have lived so long in a world where we have come up short and have been disappointed, where we have faced people who have not supplied our needs, can we come to the place of the little child again? One day I was walking through a park and I saw a dad who had boosted his little boy up with one arm to a limb, just barely touching that limb. And that little boy just went shot straight up, climbed right up to the top of that tree. And then the boy came back down and there's his dad. He, you know, you just see it going through his mind. How in the world did I get up here? This limb is probably seven feet higher than his dad. He stood, he stood the kid up on his, on his, on his, uh, with his feet, and the kid had reached with his hand. So here's the dad going like this, you know, jump. And I'm thinking this little kid has lived long enough to go through school where practical jokes are happening all the time. You know, the thing where you pull the chair out, you know, kid falls on the floor. <laughs> you know, you give him the gun. You want a piece of gum? So you give him, there's an empty wrapper. <laughs> See, all of those things that all the corn pone people have done to you your whole life. You know, Susie said she likes you. Go up and ask her out. Susie, you want to go out with me? Are you kidding me? <laughs> he believed us. I don't believe it. He believed us. All of those times, we've been disappointed by people. The question is, can we become a little child again and jump to be caught with our Father? Can we trust God enough not to have to question everything, not to have to hold our own chair, not to have to not listen to anybody else, so that we don't risk embarrassment again. Can we become as little children and trust in Him? That's the question. Now let me give you something for prayer concern and then we'll quit. There is an area in your life, I suspect, because there's, there's two or three in mine, that I'm having a tough time turning over to God because I've been disappointed in it. And I'm not sure... 
that he'll do it right. And I'm not sure if he does it his way, that's what I want. I'd like to keep control of it so that I can have security. But I need not to keep control of it so that I can have faith. Would you take the next few minutes and think of your life and think of an area that you have experienced some hurt in and jump. Turn it over to God. Depend on Him for the very necessary things. Your Father knows you have those needs. And he will supply them. Let's spend the next few minutes in prayer. And by the way, I want you to know, and I repeat this to you periodically, that during this prayer time, this altar is always open for you. There are some of us who pray better on our knees. And so if you're one of those folks, please avail yourself. Um, pray. would keep your scriptures open. <clears throat> this message is going to be mostly teaching instead of uh, fired up preaching. I do this because you, have, you are familiar enough with this, most of you are familiar enough with this scripture to have heard lots of messages on it, but may not have seen it broken down into all of its component parts so that you have not just gleaned all that there is to glean from it. Well, we're just gonna, we're gonna stutter through it today, three words at a time, so that I can share with you some of the things that may be embedded in here that you may not have heard before. Starting with verse 22, and he said to his disciples, for this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life. Now, let's look at that word anxiety or anxiousness. In Greek, it means something that tears you apart. The Greek word that has lent itself to the Anglo-Saxon word worry means to be constricted, to strangle, or to choke. So anxiety is something that at the one, on the one hand will tear you apart, on the other side it'll choke you, it'll make you feel confined. It is those two dynamics working at the same time. Now, all of us get anxious throughout our lives. Soren Kierkegaard said, Soren Kierkegaard was a, a Danish uh, theologian, one of the most brilliant men who ever lived, and he said, anxiety is the beginning of every developmental step in life. That is, when you face something new, you're going to have emotions that are that make you uneasy, all right? So anxiety itself is not a bad thing. Nerves themselves are not bad things. Uncomfortable feelings are not bad things. But the Bible says, do not be anxious, and the verb form in the Greek is present imperative, which means continually anxious. That is, letting anxiety have its way over you. Anxiety, then, is the earmark of the event rather than being something gotten past. Anxiety has never been conquered 
by avoiding what gave you anxiety. Never. And it never decreases for very long. The event of anxiety does not decrease for very long. Now anxiety can do physical damage to your body. When I was doing research for this message, um, I read about a clinic, an eye clinic in England that out of the 500 patients in a given time that it had examined, the physicians claimed that one-third of all of those patients had visual problems because of tension in their life. Not because of some sort of virus, not some, not some sort of bacteria that had gotten into the eye, not physiological deterioration, but emotional, anxious destruction. There is a um, teacher, a um, doctor at Northwestern University, I'm trying to remember his name, Leonard Fosdick is his name, and he has done studies, watch this, this will blow you out of the water. He has done studies that when people are anxious, they do not, this will get rather graphic, <clears throat> pardon me for a moment, you Episcopalians, they do not salivate, <laughs> they do not salivate at a normal pace so that the normal acids in their mouths are not neutralized so that they get cavities. In other words, being, being anxious can even give you cavities. There are definite physiological effects. It's not just an ulcer thing. It's a whole circulatory, a whole um, hormonal event that weakens your body toward disease. And of course anxiety can obstruct your performance psychologically. <clears throat> Out of all of the tests that have been done about tension in college, they have proven to be very consistent in that the most tense students make the poorest grades. By the way, would you like to know which major has a record of having the most tense and anxious students? Psychology majors, that's right. <laughs> Get this, in second place is home economics. Figure that one out. <clears throat> so anyhow, anxiety can do great damage to us and does great damage to us. It is a normal emotion and so we must face it. There is no way that we cannot be anxious and live unless you, you know, have a corner on Thorazine or you've had a lobotomy or, you know, you're just not with it, you know. I mean, some of us, <laughs> we have kids that aren't anxious, but they're not on the same planet as everybody else. <clears throat> but most of us who realize what a mess things are and what, what a mess we are, do get anxious. So, Scripture says, how do you cope? Well, let's read. As to what you shall eat, nor what your body, uh, nor... nor for your life as to what you shall eat, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. For, now here's the reasoning here. The Greek word is, hey. <laughs> I kind of like that. Life, and life is in the neuter form here. It, it, it is a concept. It is a philosophical, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the whole picture here. Life is more than food and the body more than than clothing. In other words, what he is saying is, I'm going to give you something here that adds up to more than the sum of its component parts. What 
the implication is, is that even if everything that you were anxious about went wrong, and most of the things that we're anxious about never even come to pass, even if you were anxious <clears throat> accurately and your worst fears came to pass, your body or your life would be more still, elevated above all of those things. Life is more than the things that you worry about. You know, when Beck and I were um, pregnant, <laughs> notice how men always try to horn in on the credit. <laughs> when we carried this baby, it was so tough for me. <clears throat> when we were going through classes where they teach you how to breathe, you know, and they, you know, they try to let the men have a part in it. It's so cute how they try to do this. Now, men, you count. That's our job. Breathe. <laughs> we're supposed to go like this. We're supposed to demonstrate. Like, they even want to hear it when they're in that kind of pain. I mean, it's like, you did this to me and you're up there panting like you're really part of this. Anyhow, it was so on the one hand, it was so comical, the people who were anxious about certain things. There was one lady, I think I've told you before, who had really gained a lot of weight. And her doctor said, <clears throat> pardon me, you can't have any more chocolate for the rest of this pregnancy. And she came in and she was absolutely destroyed. Now this is what anxiety does to you. It makes little things seem like they're absolutely huge. She came in tears running down her face. She looked at us and she said, my doctor says I can't have any more chocolate. And I just want to ask you a question. Now she was serious. If you can't eat chocolate, why live? <laughs> well, try and answer a question like that, will you? <clears throat> but you know, all during that pregnancy and all during every pregnancy that we went through together, um, we had the normal fears about the baby being physiologically damaged. And we wanted a, quote, normal, quote, healthy baby. And when people would ask us what we want, we'd say, just a healthy baby. And as it turned out, God gave us three healthy boys. But my sister had a baby. And she was... Um, not given the right... She was premature birth, two point or two, two pounds, 10 ounces, and, and they gave her too much oxygen and so on and so forth, and, and she was severely retarded. And you know how you pray from the very beginning that a baby will be healthy, and then what happens when the baby is not healthy? Well, for those of you who have had a non-healthy, imperfect baby, you'll know that that child has added irreplaceable things to your life, that you would not trade that child as it is for all the tea in China. You see, even when the things that you worry about go wrong, life is more than that. Life is more than that. So, Scripture goes on. And it says, <clears throat> Consider the ravens. Now, it's going to give you a little lesson here. <laughs> and this kills me. Consider, the word consider in the Greek is in the Aorist imperfect, which means it's a command, uh, aorist imperative, I'm sorry. It is a command to do something in the future for just a second, whenever it's necessary. 
Now, you, you realize here that people who are usually anxious even worry about it when they have the solutions. I mean, they will carry the solutions on to a ridiculous degree. And so Jesus knew when he gave the solution to somebody, if they were a compulsive person, they would make the solution into a bigger problem than the problem was. In other words, people who say, I'm worrying too much. I've got to go out in my backyard and just look at the ravens. So they go out there and I go, now why can't I do this all the time? Yeah, they're free. Why can't I feel as free as they are? I can't get things in perspective. Why can't I just sit down? I'm so worried about myself. I can't do that. See? Scripture says, wait a minute. Just consider it for a second. Don't keep thinking about it. Don't keep thinking about it. You, you people who are married to someone who just carry something on and on and on, even when it's resolved, just say, aorist imperative to them. And I'm sure they'll remember what, you, what this is all about. Just say, just think about it for a second in order to get it into perspective. And whenever you need to in the future, think about it for, for a second in order to get it into perspective. He says, consider the ravens just for a second. And by the way, you know, Jesus is doing here one of his um, um, how much more than uh, things. He, he always compared things. And so he's not only going to birds, who we know we have more value than, because the Bible tells us we do, but he goes to an unclean bird, the dirty bird. Okay? He's talking about a dirty bird here. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, and they have no storeroom nor barn. That's another thing, by the way, that anxiety does to you. It makes you overreact and be so careful, so careful, that you actually sabotage the project that you're doing. I heard a story once about a lady who was living in New England, <clears throat> and everybody around was planting gardens, and so she thought she better plant a garden. So she decided she'd plant peas. So she got out in her backyard, and she started digging the holes and planting, putting the peas in and so on and so forth. And <clears throat> her neighbor comes over who had a big garden, and she was covering up all these peas, and her neighbor looked at her and said, <clears throat> where are the tombstones? <laughs> she said, she thought it was some garden language that she didn't know. She said, what do you mean? She said, you have buried those peas so deep, they will never come up. That's what anxiety does to us. It makes us go too deep into a subject. Life isn't all that deep a lot of times. <laughs> I mean, it's fairly simple a lot of times. So it tends to, to make us go into ourselves and analyze and analyze or go into a problem and immobilizes us because of it. There are things that would sprout ordinarily, spontaneously, that if taken too seriously for too long are way too deep and they're dead. So it says that the ravens neither sow nor reap and they have no storeroom nor barn. And yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? <clears throat> and which of you, let's just go on from here. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit? Now a cubit, let me show you what a cubit is. It was a standard of measurement. It's kind of like the old, uh, you, you measure a horse by hands. Um, this is a big horse. No. <laughs> 
you. <laughs> look, you look like you're falling asleep. I got. That's what I do anyhow. Okay. Cubit was a, a, uh, a measurement from the elbow to the tip of the finger, which is basically the shortest. They didn't have milliliters or, or centimeters or whatever back then. That was the shortest uh, usual measurement that they had of large objects. Can add a single cubit. Adding a cubit to your height would really be something, you know? Consider, there's that word again, same verb tense. Now, just for a second here, <laughs> don't run away with this. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Now, I want you to, this is very subtle, but in biblical language, this speaks to both the men and the women. Toil is a manhood verb. It is, you know, men toiled when they went out in the went out of the home and they toiled in the field. Spin is a female verb. So he's speaking both to the men and to the women. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. If so, God arrays, now remember that word because I'm going to come back to it, the grass in the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you? <clears throat> oh, Faithless ones. Remember Fulton J. Sheen? Any of you old enough to remember Fulton J. Sheen? Used to, he was one of the few Catholic priests, priests that can really preach. I was, my family was Catholic. I used to go to Mass and dry, boy. But Fulton J. Sheen could preach. And I remember him saying one time, oh, I was a very young child. I could hardly even hear. But, <laughs> but I do remember him saying one time, um, worry is atheism. I mean, basically, worry is atheism. You don't believe that God is God. And I've always remembered that. That's true. So, oh, faithless ones is a degree of atheism. But here's what he's saying. Here's, here's, the, here's the situation that drew up in their minds when he said, consider the lilies of the field. Lilies is not like what we had on Sunday morning. Um, I mean, Easter Sunday morning. Um, lilies is um, a... a, a kind of a code name. Arabs still use this term for anemones. It's a, it's a wildflower. And Palestine was such a dry and arid land that when they had a good rain, like we've just had in the last couple of days, these wildflowers would bloom for about a day all over the landscape. And they were absolutely beautiful. They were gorgeous. But having no more rain, the, the, the soil conditions about like Florida is very porous and, and it would dry up just as quickly. They would die in a day. Palestine does not have wood either for the ovens. And so people would go out daily in order to bake their bread. They didn't have a supply of wood and they would go out and they would gather up these flowers that had died and the grass that had dried up and they would put it into the oven. And so... What Jesus is saying is literally what happened every day to them. And he is saying, watch. Now, this is something that you really can miss when you read this. You think he's talking about physical needs because he's talking about food and what to wear. And everybody needs food and clothing. You need clothing to keep warm. 
But he isn't talking about it like it's clothing to keep warm, is it? Is he? He's talking about Solomon in all of his glory. Now, he's, Solomon was the richest king in the history of Israel. In all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. He's talking beauty for clothing. He's talking winsomeness. He's talking being attractive in your clothing. You know, it's not, it's not bad to be attractive. It's okay. If that's, where, if, you know, if that's what God's given you in life, that's okay. So he's not, even ta he's not only talking about physical needs, he's talking about social needs here. There's a hint of social needs. It is okay to want to place your social needs in the hands of God and have Him understand even those needs. Now, there are not many of us that worry every day about getting our physical needs met. There are not very many of us that worry every day about how we're going to put food on the table. But when it comes to worrying about whether or not we're accepted socially, worrying what people think of us, that connects. I heard a story about Woody Hayes when he first went to Ohio State to be the football coach. He had coached at the little... Um, two little universities in Ohio, Denison and Miami, which is now a pretty big university, but at that time it wasn't. And the first time he walked into the Ohio State football stadium, 86,000 seats, he had the hand of his little boy with him. And they walked out in the middle of the field, and he just stood and looked at all those seats and was intimidated, was so intimidated. And his little boy could feel it. And I think he muttered something to himself like, I can't believe this many people are going to be watching. And his little boy said this. He looked down at the playing field. He said, yeah, but Dad, the field is still the same size. You know, it doesn't matter how many people are watching us. If we're doing what we need to be doing, that's our only work. But God knows we have social needs. He just answers them by giving us work to do and then letting that take care of the problem instead of us seeking everybody's approval. Okay, let's go on. And do not seek what you shall eat and do not... And, and what you shall drink. The seek, by the way, is a continual... The verb tense is continually seek. Don't always worry about it. And do not keep worrying. For all these things, the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows you need these things. But seek first His kingdom. Seek for His kingdom, and these things shall be added. Now watch these words, to you. Doesn't for you, not added in your possession, they will be added to you. They will be added on you. They will be added in you. They will be added as a part of you. I'm going to tell you about this in just a minute. All right. Do not be afraid, little flock. Your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Now I've got about three more stories, and then we're going to pray. The essence of this Scripture, to me, 
And I realize that as the Holy Spirit works, you know, there's four or five hundred different sermons that happen in here. And that's the way it should be. I am never offended if you don't get my point. Because I assume that what you're getting is God's point for you. I am not here to get a message across. I am here to present Scripture so that God can speak to you directly. So, let me just rehearse, though, what it says to me and then see what God brings up in your life. First of all, when he says, all the nations of the world seek after these things, what it says to me is, how are you different than anybody else? How are you different? There is a disease of mankind that you also have. Have you gotten over it yet? There came a point in my life when I went through a, a, a time of great anxiety. And I referred to it a little bit last week. Um, I took a look at myself at, I was, I was very, um, I took a look at the church I was pastoring. I was a senior pastor of a large church. Everything was going right, but there was something not right inside of me. And part of it was the fact that we had built a great institution and lost the meaning of what it is to be a church. In everybody's eyes, in all the world's eyes, we were successful. But we had not done everything we could to answer needs in the lives of people. And by the way, last week when I was telling you about how institutions can begin to suck the life juices out of vision and how ministers um, tend to go along with that uh, for various reasons. Well, number one, because we're greedy like everybody else. And number two, because we, got, we get all caught up in the life of the institution. Somebody appoints and says, here, you're head of the church. What does that mean? You know, what it means to a minister is you've got to make sure that this institution keeps on running. And so the institution becomes your job instead of people. Bad system. Bad system. Don't want any part of that system. But when I said that last week, let me make clear to you again, I am not talking about other ministers. I'm talking about me. I've got all the stuff I can handle in my own life. I make no accusations about other pastors. And I hope when you hear things like that, you won't be thinking about everybody else. You'll be thinking about you. Because you and I have got problems of our own. And God didn't bring us here to tell us about other people's problems or to reform other people's lives. He brought us here for us. So please don't ever think that what I am saying is an accusation of somebody else. I've told you time and time again, what I say up here, I'm saying to myself. You're just overhearing it. But anyhow, I came to a time of great anxiety in my life. And Becky, who is great, I tell you, I, and, I, and I was all, you know, kind of, things weren't going right. I mean, I, I, nothing was flowing. You've had that feeling where you be, just become so um, all gummed up inside that you listen to somebody and the scripture that would naturally come to mind ordinarily wasn't coming. And the words on Sunday morning that were just natural, were a real struggle. I mean, God still did what he needed to do. He always does things in spite of us. But there was no flow. There was no freedom. And I just became, and when that happens, you become more anxious. And Becky saw it. And she said, Hunter, come here. <laughs> she always pulls me up like this. Come here. She said, I'm going to send you away for a few days. You just need to get away. Now, the place in all the world that relaxes me is the ocean. 
We were in Indianapolis at the time. Not even close to any ocean that I know of. Couldn't even go to a wave pool. It was the middle of the winter. She said, I'm going to send you down south. Now, we've never just, we just don't keep money. I mean, for some reason, it just flows. <laughs> you have that feeling, don't you? We've never had it. Probably never will. That's okay. Yes, it flows, and it flows in the right places. That's okay. But we were typical that time. And I said, where in the world is she going to get this money? Well, somewhere. And I came down to Daytona Beach and just fasted and walked and prayed for three days just to, just to let God speak and to shut up for a while and to not have any distractions for a while. And it was wonderful. And I got back on the plane, and here comes this old guy, this old guy who looked like he was the wisest man on earth. He reminded me of my grandfather. He had the old khaki pants and old net shoes and this um, houndstooth coat. Remember those old things? Just looked like wisdom personified. Came in with his little professor spectacles on and a Wall Street Journal under his arm and sat down. I thought, this is going to be great. Because I love, I love to glean wisdom from people who've lived longer than I have. They've got so much more than I do. So I sat down, I started a conversation with him. He had, he had gone through life like this. He had, was smart enough that he earned enough money to retire in his mid-30s. Not enough money to retire rich, just enough money to retire. Just enough money, if managed wisely, that he could put food on the table and a roof over his head, he and his wife, and travel to see his kids every once in a while. That was about basically how much money he had. And I said, we got in this great conversation. I said, well, how, you know, are you satisfied with life? And he, his eyes kind of lit up, you know, and he was. He, and he, he, learned, he knew so much about what was going on. Anyhow, we started our descent to Indianapolis Airport, and I just had to rush it. I said, tell me. If you would advise a young whippersnapper like me, in comparison to him I was, if you would advise a young whippersnapper like me, give me one piece of advice, give me one caution, one word of wisdom, what would it be? And he took his glasses off and he looked at me and he said, Son, there's avarice all over this world and throughout every life I've ever seen. People always want more. People hardly ever have enough. Avarice is a terrible, sinking, debilitating disease. Every day, search your heart. And if you constantly want more, if you never have enough, you've got to clean yourself of that avarice. Never forgotten that. You know, that's what makes Christians different from the world because they do have enough. They have learned to be contented whatever their circumstances because their basic need comes from God and their answer comes from God and there is nothing in this life more important than Jesus Christ and we have Him living in us. So what is the big need other than that? That's what makes us different.
from all the nations of the world. Yes, God does care about all of our needs and will answer all our needs better than we do our children. He knows about our social needs. I, a couple of months ago, this is how sharp a guy I am. A couple of months ago, I came out into the family room, had a pair of jeans on, a t-shirt. Jai said, Dad, don't wear your jeans like that. I thought, how many ways are there to wear a pair of jeans? <laughs> and so I said, how many ways are there to wear a pair of jeans? <laughs> and he came over and he knelt down. And this is, you know, by the way, in case there are any of you others like I am, you fold this over so it's real tight and you roll it up into a tight roll. See, that's the way to wear jeans. So he rolled them up for me and he said, there. And I looked at him and I said, Josh, you seem to forget. I'm 40 years old. I don't care what my jeans look like. He looked at me, he said, Dad, you seem to forget. I'm 13 years old, I do care what your jeans look like. <laughs> you know, our father knows all that stuff. He knows our social needs. He will give us enough to meet his children's social needs. Secondly, he knows that we have this tendency to sow and reap and store and build and try to always have enough on hand in case he takes away what we don't want him to take away. But you know what? The very things, now this is going to be, this time out here, I've got to make an analogy here that some of you are not going to like. And I won't do this very much. But it's a little gross. And again, Episcopalians, forgive us. You know, those of you who are used to formal worship services, sometimes we're formal here, but most of the time we're not. This is just a good analogy. We think we are building and making all of this stuff in this world, and it is so great, and God ought to be impressed. But you know we are going through a level of spiritual maturity that one day we'll look at everything we've made in this world, and it won't look so good to us because we're going to be comparing it to God. Now here's the analogy. You remember when you were toilet training your kids? I'm sorry. <clears throat> and you'd set them up there, and they'd do their stuff. And what did they say? Almost to the kid. They'd go, ooh, look what I made, didn't they? And what did you want to say as a parent? You wanted to say, don't be talking about that stuff. That is so gross. I don't want... But what did you say? Because you wanted to encourage them in their growth. Ooh, how good, big boy, wonderful, great. It just went on and on, didn't you? Well, you know what? I hate to tell you all this. <laughs> when we go to God and we say, look at the business I made. <laughs> look at the church I built. You know, look at the car I have. Philippians 3.8, what'd Paul say? I counted all as dung, didn't he? When it comes to the surpassing glory of Jesus Christ. You know, God just wants to have us become the kind of people where he's more important than anything we get. Where the relationship with him is the priority. 
because it is every bit like a marriage where it's good enough. I mean, it's just as important to be a good spouse as it is to get a good spouse. It's every bit as important to be a good son as it is to get a good father. And his whole essence is to take the drive that we have in this world to get enough and to help us become again like little children who trust him and who depend upon him so that he can love us closely. One day I was walking through a park, last story, and I saw this, this guy who had pushed his son. There was this tree with a, with a not very low limb. And his kid was just big enough for this guy to take both of his feet in one hand and push him up so that the kid could grab the limb and climb up and go all the way to the top of the tree. And it was just big fun. It was really neat. And then the kid came back down onto that limb. Now the father is standing below that limb, and the kid is, you know, leaning on this, this thing, and all of a sudden he panics. Anxiety city. Worry. And he's not going to let go of that limb. And the father is saying, come on, honey, jump. I will catch you. Now, I know what this kid's thinking. Because this kid's been through school enough to have all of the practical jokes played upon him by his friends. All the times he started to sit down in a chair and somebody pulled it out. All of the times somebody hit him with a piece of gum, say, we want a piece of gum, and you opened up and it's empty. All the times that somebody says, Susie really likes you. I mean, she is hot for you. Go ask her out. And you say, Susie, I can't believe it. She's the most popular girl in school. I can't either, but that's what she's saying. Go ask her out. And you go and ask her out. And she throws up. <laughs> and all the guys that cooked it up are going, I can't believe you believed us. I can't believe it. What a jerk. See, that's what that kid has already gone through. And his father is asking for trust. Let it be like it was when you were little, and when I opened my arms, you never hesitated to jump. All of us have been betrayed, haven't we? We've all been disappointed, and we've all been hurt. And it's tough when God opens his arms and says, Trust me, it is. But that's what he wants that we become again like little children. And we don't stay up in the tree trying to build a ladder, but we jump. Maybe there's something this morning that you know you ought to trust God with, but you're having a tough time doing it. And you want to lay it down, but you don't want to lay it down. Maybe it's financial, maybe it's social, maybe it's personal, I don't know. But I want you to know God's standing here this morning like this, saying, let me provide. Let me catch you. Let me take care of you. Could we just take a couple of minutes and be in prayer and let the Holy Spirit remind you what God wants you 
to trust Him to provide. 